Okay, we do have two announcements. The first is that we do need help in the nursery and in prep school. So if any of you would like to uh, help out in those areas, please contact Mark Friedrich. And second, uh, we are going to go back to pre-COVID traditional normal services, Bible class, seating, etc., over uh, starting the uh, first Sunday in May. So if you would like to discuss that with the leadership, you can contact a deacon prior to that to that event. And that means we'll be going back to matzah and grape juice instead of whatever and purple-colored water. Okay? So that's the plan right now. Things can change. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started this evening, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer. Make sure we are spiritually prepared to study the word. And that means that if necessary, we need to confess sin. And we know that when we do so, we are not only forgiven of those sins, but cleansed from all unrighteousness. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, we're thankful that we have forgiveness at the cross. We're thankful that Christ paid for our sins. We're thankful so much for your grace, your faithfulness, your, uh, the fact that you never change. Father, we are so grateful for the promises that we have in your word that tell us that no matter what kind of things, chaos, um, craziness, antagonism, uncertainty that goes on in the world around us, that you are our rock, you are our fortress, you are our high tower, you are the foundation of stability itself. And Father, we thank you that we can trust in you and rely upon you, and that we recognize that we are not to trust in men, but we are to trust in you. So, Father, as we study tonight, give us insight into what happened historically at the time of the judges and insight as to how that applies in our own circumstances, our own thinking, and that we might be challenged by the word just as Joshua's generation was challenged by him. And we pray this in Christ's name, amen. Okay, just by way of review, make sure we don't forget what's going on in Judges. In this lesson, we're looking at the background to Judges chapter 2, and the question that we are going to answer is the question about service. What does it mean to serve the Lord? And the question that Joshua challenged his generation with is the question, uh, who will you serve? As for me and my house, we will serve 
the Lord. So we are reminded of the basic outline of Judges. The first uh, two chapters and six verses are the introduction, which describe what goes on in Israel. Chapter 1 is a report on what happens as the tribes advance in their various uh, allotments of land to try to take it from the Canaanites. And they are... Uh, they begin with the tribe of Judah being spiritually successful, and by the end, the tribe of Dan doesn't make any headway at all and is forced into defeat. And that the cause of this has nothing to do with technology, but everything to do with obedience to the Lord. That is the real key. And in history, we have to learn that, that no matter what, with God is on our side, then it does not matter what the other side has. God is greater than all of the forces of Satan combined. And so this is the lesson that they had to learn. They failed to learn it. And because of their compromise and incomplete obedience, it led to failure. And then in chapter 2, we will see the introduction of the cycles of discipline. And what's so tragic about it and what is so disheartening about it is what we see is basically the same thing that we see in our own lives and in the lives of most believers throughout history, and that is we continue to make the same mistakes, we continue to uh, fail in the same ways, and God calls us sheep and it's not a compliment. And that is exactly what gets illustrated in this chapter, except the cycles aren't just repetitive, they deteriorate. So each time they are disobedient, they are more disobedient than the time before. And each time that God brings discipline upon their lives and upon the nation, it's uh, more harsh than the time before until it reaches its nadir with the time of Samson where there's no victory over the enemy. And that is how the book of Samuel, 1 Samuel, will open. Uh, that The second major part of the book is how the leadership goes from being spiritually focused and mature to, a, to spiritually obtuse with, with Samson. And then in the last part, we see how this has happened to the priesthood in the episodes of chapters 17 and 18, and then also with the people with this horrible uh, civil war. So we're still in the middle of that first section. And last time, I talked about this whole issue of how can a loving God tell the Israelites to annihilate every man, woman, and child of the Canaanites, that's just not a loving God. And the basic problem that we see here, and we see in many, many ways, is that people come to the Scripture with preconceived ideas about what love is, about what justice is, about what right and wrong should be. And then when they read the Bible, they say, oh, that, that's a horrible God. And what they're doing is making the, setting themselves up above God and making God answerable to their concepts of love and justice and righteousness, rather than letting God be the one who defines justice, righteousness, and love. And once we come to understand that, 
then all of the other aspects in life will begin to come together in harmony. And so uh, I'm just going to review that very quickly. First of all, we have to begin with the principle that God's love is always perfect. It is flawless. It never makes a mistake. It is based upon his omniscience. He knows everything. He knows everything there is to know about you. He knows everything there is to know about your parents and your children and your friends and your spouse. There's nothing that God has forgotten. He knows every little thing. He knows all your deepest, darkest secrets, the things that you don't even want to admit to yourself in the dark. Nothing escapes his full knowledge. He knows everything. He knows what will destroy us and what will enable us to be great, to fulfill all of the potential that we have if we serve him. But we don't know any of those things. We haven't a clue. We need to recognize that we are so limited in our knowledge It is like a molecule of H2O compared to the vast oceans and rivers and water systems on the earth. And that that is always a weak illustration because those are finite. And the oceans, uh, God's love is infinite and without, uh, without limitation. And God's desires for us are shaped by his perfect righteousness. The righteousness of God expresses the standards, the norms and standards of God's character. He knows what is right. He knows this because he knows all things. So he knows what it truly is the right thing because he's the only one who has all the facts. And so when God's righteousness is violated, then his justice has to act. But his justice can be perfect justice because unlike any other judge, he knows all of the information. God's justice calls for God to act, but it's always in conformity with the perfectly righteous standards of his character and with his love. So that's how these things fit together. And when we set up artificial definitions for love and for righteousness and justice that, and then impose that on God, then it looks as if it's all contradictory and, oh, my God is such a harsh God. But as I pointed out last time, because God knows what is best for us and what the consequences of bad behavior will be, he wants to prov- keep us from experiencing those consequences. So point number two in summary, God's perfect love, his flawless righteousness, and his impeccable justice work in harmony for the absolute best for the human race, for every individual in the human race, as well as the whole. He doesn't just deal with an an identity group and deal with groups. He deals with individuals within that group. This is one of the more abstract but more impressive applications and implications of the Trinity. God is one, and at the same time, God is more than one. He is three. He is, in philosophical language, he is both one and many. He is a perfect unity and perfect diversity. When you emphasize unity then one is always dominant and you do not and it dominates the 
that uh, the pluralities. So if you apply that to politics, that leads to tyranny. One, the one, the king, the pharaoh, the dictator, is the one in charge at the expense of all of the people, the multiplicity, the diversity. But with the Trinity, you have di- perfect diversity throughout all, all of eternity. If you emphasize diversity, which is what you have in polytheism, where you have many, many gods, then at, you don't have unity. There's no, nothing to tie everything together. Uh, human philosophy has never been able to resolve the problem of unity and diversity in the, in the universe and in creation simply because they have the wrong starting point. But when you start with a triune God who is both one and the many, then God can give meaning to the one without diminishing the many, and he can give significance to all of the individuals without sacrificing uh, the unity. So God allows for, uh, for the human race, the unity of the human race, all that is best as well as all that is best for every single individual. You can only do that if you're omniscient, omnipotent, and omnipresent. You cannot do that if you are a finite deity. So that because of his perfect love and flawless righteousness and impeccable justice, he recognizes that this must lead to the destruction of the Canaanites, not because he hates them individually or because he hates them as a, a group, as an identity group. He does that because they have all given themselves to a toxic religion. Now, we're not going to get into that as much tonight as we will next week. But their religion at its very core is demonic. And it is expressed through all kinds of horrible, horrible things. And it caters to the lusts and the pleasure factors in the human sin nature, which is why it was so evil. Because in the ancient Near East, in the various religious systems which were all just basic facets of the same idea uh, that you had, whether it was in Canaan or whether it was Phoenician or whether it was Syrian or Egyptian or Greek or Roman or Mesopotamian. It was all basically the same thing. They just changed the names of the gods and changed the names of the mountain where they had their headquarters from uh, Olympus to Mount Zaphon in Syria and various other locations but it was all basically the same thing. And in all of these different religions, they had a couple of things in common. One of them was there were no prohibitions. Their gods didn't say, you can't do this. So they could do whatever they wanted to do. And the second thing was they were all based on the principle of prosperity, We have something very close to that today that has infected the Christian church, the prosperity gospel, which is the just sort of a uh, heretical manifestation of materialism, and it feeds people's lust patterns, and it leads to all sorts of uh, problems in society because it feeds the lust of the sin nature. So unless there is a restraint on sin we're going to have problems. 
Now, a few weeks ago, I know that stretches the memory a little bit sometimes. If you go back to the Sunday morning prior to the Chafer Conference, which was about six or seven weeks ago, I went through a chart and diagram showing why we have seven different ages for the sin nature. I mean, excuse me, for dispensations, for the uh, program of God. So we have these these different dispensations and ages, and in each period of time, there God has provided a different mechanism for restraining sin. And the point is, when you go through all of those, that at, when you get to the end, nothing really is able to restrain the potential for evil in the human heart. We start off after the fall with the age of conscience. Conscience is the tool for restraining evil, but it completely fails. And by the time you get to the period right before Noah's flood, that's God's judgment, God says that the thoughts of man's heart were evil continually, and he regretted that he had made man so that he has to wipe everybody out except everybody out except for the family of Noah, Noah and his wife, there's three sons and their wives, and he has to basically start over. It's not really a plan B. It was always part of the first plan, but that first dispensation was to show that conscience is inadequate for restraining evil because man lusts for evil. He desires evil. He rejects God. So then God institutes human government. And this begins with the Noahic Covenant. And as you go through that period of time from the flood to the Tower of Babel, human government has been perverted by tyranny as seen in the empire that Nimrod sought to develop centered in Babel. Then after Babel, God changes up his plan And now he's going to work through one person whom he calls out, and that's Abraham. And he's going to work through his people, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, those their descendants, the Jews, and he will give them law. Well, the promise given to Abraham is not able to help them in the restraint of sin. The law is inadequate for restraining evil in Israel. And then Christ will come. He will pay the penalty for sin. There will be a new people of God called out, the church, and they are going to experience something no one in the Old Testament experienced, and that is they're going to have uh, the baptism by the Holy Spirit, which where every believer is identified with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. And Romans 6 says that this breaks the power of sin. What's the hymn that talks about breaking the power of canceled sin? What a great, great line that is. That that sums it up. It breaks the power of canceled sin. So we have uh, the tyranny of the sin nature is broken for us. That never happened before. Always think about that. When we're talking about what's going on in Israel in uh, the period of the judges, remember, they, they can't... Uh, not do, not obey the sin nature. They're under the law. That's how they have their spiritual life. It's by following the ritual of the law and trusting God. 
but they can't approach anything like we have because their sin nature, that power hasn't been broken. But even with the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, even with all of the assets that God gives the church age believer, the church age is going to experience uh, cycles of apostasy as as uh, Paul outlines in passages like 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 4, numerous other passages. And then we're going to get to the uh, millennial kingdom. It starts off, everybody's saved. All of those who survive the tribulation are going to go into the millennial kingdom, and they will be under the new covenant, and all kinds of wonderful changes will take place in them, but they will get married and they'll have children that um, that ev- many of whom will reject God, just like the generation that comes up after Joshua and his generation. This generation will reject God, and by the end of the thousand years, um, during which Satan is is bound through that thousand years, so they can't blame they blame Satan, they can't blame government, they can't blame any institutions because everything is perfect. The only problem is this in nature. And untold millions are going to join Satan and revolt against the perfect reign of Jesus Christ. And God will incinerate them with brimstone and fire. And as a result, that ends human history. But he shows that, that sin is so, so, so permeates every, every cell of our being that that the only thing that can really solve it is to remove it and that's that's the essence of what evil is and so the Canaanites have adopted one of the most evil toxic religions in all of human history they validate uh, adultery and fornication and cult prostitution and child sacrifice and all manner of evil things are going on, but it feeds everybody's sin nature, so it makes it very, very popular. And God has given them 400 years of grace uh, before he is going to bring judgment upon them. So it is his, God's discipline is always going to be perfectly applied and forth with God's perfect standards. Uh, what they reject, God's justice, must reprove either through divine discipline on the believer or judgment on the unbelievers. His grace extended to the Canaanites for over 400 years. Genesis 15:13 uh, and verse 16, actually, God said, In the fourth generation they shall return here, that is, Abram's descendants, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. He gave them 400 years of grace to change, and they did not. And then uh, that brings us up to where we are in our study in uh, Judges 2 and 6. So in this chapter, which is a summary chapter, we're going to see the outworking of God's perfect righteousness and his justice and his love toward Israel. They will come under the same kind of divine discipline to some degree, as the Canaanites, because when they violate the righteousness of God, his justice demands that there be uh, discipline. And so we will, we will see that with them. 
So let's look briefly by way of introduction at our opening passage in Judges 2, 6 through 9. And then before we go to Joshua 24 for the background to this, we will have a brief review of what happens in 1 through 5, just to reiterate a couple of points. And when Joshua had dismissed the people, see, when this starts, you go, Joshua, Joshua died back in chapter 1. We read that. Now, after the death of Joshua, what's he doing popping up here? Well, this is a flashback, and this is a flashback to the events in Genesis, I mean, excuse me, in Joshua 24, at the end of which Joshua will dismiss the people from Shechem. When Joshua had dismissed the people, the children of Israel went each to his own inheritance to possess the land. So the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great works of the Lord which he had done for Israel. And then in almost perfect repetition of the end of of Joshua 24, it repeats it. Now Joshua the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died when he was 110 years old. They buried him within the border of his inheritance at timnath Harris in the mountains of Ephraim on the north side of Mount Gosh. So we'll end up tonight right back at that same point at the end of Joshua 24. So we're told that the angel of the Lord shows up, and we ask who that was, and this is Yahweh. This is actually the second person of the Trinity. This is the pre-incarnate Lord Jesus Christ in a theophany. And uh, one point that we need to make that I did not make is that when the angel of the Lord shows up, you know that there's a message because the word for uh, translated angel, malak is the word messenger. So that's the role of the second person of the Trinity. He is the one who reveals the Father, and he has a message. And the message uh, is that he is going to come from, uh, is what he is going to articulate, but his uh, location changes from Gilgal, which had been the command post for the Israelites after they crossed into into the promised land. And he goes to this place, we're not sure of its location, somewhere in the central highlands, probably not far from Bethel. It is not it is named something else, but after this event, it is named Bochim, which means the place of weeping, because he brought bad news. And the importance of Gilgal is to remind uh, Israel of of an event that occurred after they crossed uh, the river. No one had been circumcised for 40 years. And circumcision, as we saw, was the sign of the Abrahamic covenant. And in Scripture, if you're going to enjoy the blessings of the covenant, then you have to be obedient in terms of your responsibilities in the covenant. And part of their responsibility was that all of the males would be circumcised. And it was a picture of the fact that they were uh, separated unto God. And this was the, and the idea that God had called them out as a, as a special nation with a special purpose. 
Gilgal was just uh, inside the land after they crossed the Jordan, uh, just uh, to the uh, east to northeast of of, uh, of Jericho, and so they uh, named it Gilgal. It's a play on words for the Hebrew word gul, which means to roll away, because God has rolled away the reproach of Egypt. What is Egypt? What is that picture? Their slavery in Egypt is a picture of everyone's slavery to sin. And the removal of the foreskin is a picture of, of, of circumcision of the heart. In the Old Testament, there is a circumcision of the heart. Twice it's mentioned in Deuteronomy. Once in Deuteronomy 2, uh, 10, 16, and the other in Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. And at 30, verse 6, it seems to uh, depict something that occurs in the future, probably under the New Covenant, where it says, The Lord your God will, in the future sometime, circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants. And that picture of circumcision has to do with the removal of sin and the reproach of sin. And so this is an indication of God's grace to the descendants of Abraham and God's promise of blessing for them if they will walk in obedience uh, to to the covenant. We saw that there were only two things that God had commanded of them when they went into the land. The first was you don't make any covenants with the inhabitants in the land. Why not? You can't trust them. You know, don't get into any kind of contract with them because they're not trustworthy. They will violate it, and you will put yourself into a position of weakness uh, where you will be taken advantage of. And the second thing is, you shall tear down their altars. See, that was the issue. He's not after them because he hates them individually. He's after them because he hates their religion. And the very presence of their altars is a temp- will be a temptation for Israel. We'll talk about that probably next time, uh, because as God says, it He is going to lead these nations uh, active to serve as they will be a thorn in their flesh, and they will serve as a snare. A snare is a trap. You get people into the trap by baiting the trap with something that they want. And this is what happens. Uh, James chapter 1 talks about this, and we'll come back and discuss that later. But that's the background, that's the picture here that, that they will be um, ensnared by the temptations of this religion so every detail related to their religious practice needs to be eradicated the problem that we all have is we want to get along with the world around us and we don't want to be thought of as some sort of religious freak we don't want to be thought of as somebody who's exceptionally pious or legalistic or just Uh, always a problem for the others in the culture. Uh, I was at, there's one lady who attends this church who at one time had had put in a job application at a local grocery chain, and somebody there made the comment to her, well, you're not one of those Christians who won't work on Sunday, are you? And so you see this embedded hostility towards 
Christianity in a comment like that. And so what we want to do is, well, we don't want to cause problems, and so we don't want to seem like we're, um, we're opposed to what the world is doing. We want to get along. And so a lot of Christians are very responsive to the pressure of the culture. And we see that today with all of the things that are happening in relation to race problems, and in relation to economic problems and many, many other areas. And more and more people are beginning to recognize, if they aren't overtly saying it, they're saying it in private, that the problem is Christianity. That's the problem. If we didn't have all these Christians around, we could do everything the way we wanted to do it, and we could finally have the kind of life that we want to have. James 4.4 4 gives us a tremendous warning. It, relate, it tells us, it identifies in the passage what spiritual adultery is all about. Adultery has to do with unfaithfulness to a covenant. That's the root meaning of the word. It is not talking about a physical sexual act. It is talking about being unfaithful to a legal contract, to a covenant. And so James talks to those spiritually disobedient believers in this congregation and he says do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God that compromising that going along to get along is hostility to God it may make you feel better and that you're not uh, it's not, not getting as much opposition from some people around you maybe those in your family But God is the one we need to be concerned about. And God says that if you compromise with the world, it's hostility to him. And that's what should be foremost in our minds. James goes on to say, Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. I'm telling you, things are getting awfully complex in our culture. And that the... Uh, policies of numerous companies and corporations are going to be forcing a lot of believers to make a choice between a paycheck and God. But they don't look at it that way. They will be eased into the compromise, one little compromise at a time, until all of a sudden they realize that they have really made a mistake. And this is the warning, that we have to be very careful. We have to learn to be shrewd, Uh, The word the Bible uses is a room. We'll talk about it later on. A room is the word that's used to describe the serpent. And the serpent was crafty. The serpent is subtle. Those are some of the translations. He is very shrewd. But the same word is used in a positive way in, in Proverbs that the wise person is shrewd. He understands the issues so that he can avoid stepping into the traps of enticement. So we have to learn this only doctrine in your soul. Only when you really understand the Word of God are you going to be able to avoid these kinds of snares. And so there's the challenge from the angel of the Lord, the people, uh, this is Joshua's generation, and they lift up their voices and weep. Now, we don't know exactly how, how sincere they are, 
But from what we're told in the text, there's probably a large measure of sincerity there. I know that contradicts what I've said earlier. It's probably not superficial. The next generation is the generation that goes against the Lord. But this is the generation of Joshua, the generation of the elders uh, who are younger than Joshua, who have seen the works of the Lord. That generation continues to walk with the Lord, even though there's more and more compromise as they die out. And so that brings us back to the passage that I opened with. Now, the key word that we see here is the word I have underlined in verse 7. It, this takes us back in verse 6 to the events of Joshua 24. It's not chronologically after verse 5. It is changing the scene. It's a flashback to what happened uh, at the, uh, after the major battles of the conquest had had uh, been won where they had, Joshua's uh, strategy was to go in and take all of the uh, major cities, capture all the trade routes, and then after that each tribe would be responsible for uh, mopping the mopping up operation in their particular area. And so this says in verses 6 and 7, when Joshua had dismissed, dismissed the people, that is, he has dismissed them from Shechem. The children of Israel went each to his own inheritance to possess the land. So the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua. Now Joshua died, as we see in verse 8, he died at 110. Now somebody correct my math here if I'm wrong. But Joshua was approximately 35 years of age when they left Egypt in the Exodus. And they spend a year at Sinai, so that makes him 36. And then they spend 40 years in the wilderness, that makes him 76. 76 from 100 is 24, and he lives to 110, so that's 34 years. So he has 34 years of tranquility in the land before he dies. But he's much older than the others, the elders, because they are all the ones now who were born after uh, the events at Kadesh Barnea. So at Kadesh Barnea, when the, when the uh, spies went into the land, they came back and, and 10 of them said, oh, we can't do that. They have giants in the land. They have uh, uh, walled cities, and there are too many people. We can't win. Joshua and Caleb said, we can do it because God can do it. And so God said, everybody un over the age of 20, except for Joshua and Caleb, will not be allowed to go into the land. So for the next 40 years, everybody that was uh, over the age of 20 at Kadesh Barnea has to die. So when this text talks about the elders of, of the people that are with Joshua, they're much, much younger than Joshua. They're at least 15 years younger than him, and many of them are 20 or 30 years younger than them, and so when you put the chronology together, you realize that when the generation that comes up in verse 10, where it says, when all that generation had been gathered to their fathers, 
another generation arose after them who did not know the Lord nor the work which he had done for Israel. You have a major generation gap, but this is uh, probably a good 20 years after Joshua dies. So this is a lengthy period of time before we get into the event starting in verse 11. But to understand what happened before verse 6, we need to go to Joshua chapter uh, 24. So you just have to turn back about three pages because Joshua 24 is the last chapter in Joshua. And so we need to look at this. Now remember... I pointed out that the key word that we have here in 2.7 is the word served. This is a very important word. In the Hebrew, it is the word avad, and we'll look at it in just a minute. But this is the main word. It is used 16 times in Joshua 24. Joshua 24 ends before verse 6 here begins. Joshua 24 is where Joshua talks to them about whether they're going to serve the Lord or not. So that sets the context. We have to understand this concept of serving the Lord. So in verse 1 we read, Then Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem. In Hebrew, it's Shechem. They came to Shechem and called for the elders of Israel, for their heads, for their judges, for their officers, and they presented themselves before God. So that means that they have come to Shechem. They probably have the um, tabernacle with them. And so they can present themselves before God and before the high priest. And Joshua says to the people, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Your fathers, including Terah, the father of Abraham, and the father of Nahor, dwelt on the other side of the river in old times. Now, what does that mean? The other side of the river, the river that's mentioned here isn't the Nile. This is talking about the Euphrates. This is going back to the time of Abraham, and he is from Ur of the Chaldees, and so his uh, father and his grandfather uh, lived down in uh, just north of what we call the Persian Gulf, where the Euphrates and the Tigris come together, and then they empty out into the Persian Gulf. And they, Abraham, in some way, found out about God, the creator God of the universe, the God who created all things, and he trusted in that God. And we don't know what the circumstances are. We don't know when he did that, when Genesis 12 opens up, it is, God is talking to Abraham, but Abraham is about 65 years of age at the time, and he's already a believer. We know that because of the grammar in Genesis 15, 6, where God, uh, or where Moses, who's writing Genesis, reminds us that Abraham at that time had already, at some time in the past, believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. So uh, they present themselves before God, uh, and he, uh, um, Joshua begins to remind them of their past and what God has done historically 
Friends will see history is important. If you eradicate history, you don't know who you are. You don't know why you're here. You don't know anything about yourself. And we live in a horrible generation in this country where there is the attempt to cancel history and to rewrite history just to make it up. It's postmodernism. Nothing is actual. Nothing is true. We accept what we want it to be, and so we just make up our own truth, and we're going to make up our own history. But there are a lot of people who are fighting that and fighting back because once we lose our history, we lose our future. It is the surest way to destroy a culture, and the other side understands that. And so here, there is the reminder here that they served other gods. So this introduces us to this word. We've seen it now twice. In English, the word served is really a softened form of the significance of this word. We have a real problem in the English-speaking word with our history of slavery, but it shouldn't bother us. Uh, Not that I'm approving of it in any way, shape, or form, but that up until the 19th century, almost every civilization on earth practiced slavery. Now, that doesn't justify it, but that is the way it was. But things began to change in the late 18th century, the late 1700s. A lot of this was the result of the widespread uh, revival known as the First Great Awakening that occurred in England and in the United, or in the colonies in America in the 1740s, and under the uh, preaching of men like John Wesley, Charles Wesley, and especially George Whitfield, the three of them were close friends until they separated over some uh, Calvinist doctrinal issues. Uh, but as a result of that, you had the rise of, even, of a biblical evangelicalism in England, out of which you had a number of men come who were uh, realize the horrors of slavery. Among them, you find a man named William Wilberforce. You also find another man named Granville Sharp. And you find another man named John Newton, who is the one who wrote uh, the words for Amazing Grace, and before he was saved, he was the captain of a slave ship. And there were many, many others that were with them. Wilberforce was a member of Parliament, and it took him about 20 years or 25 years before the Parliament of England finally reached a point where they passed a bill abolishing uh, the slave trade. And that is because you had wealthy, aristocratic, rich, heterosexual, uh, able-bodied male evangelicals who led the way. And if it weren't for them, we would still be practicing slavery today. Wilberforce lived long enough to see the abolition of slavery in England. It took, took longer before things happened in the United States. But slavery was still practiced in other parts of the world. They were practiced by the Arabs, and they were practiced by the various uh, tribes in Africa who were uh, still at war with other tribes, capturing their enemies and selling them off as slaves to the Arab slave traders. And because of all of these horrors of slavery, we have 
we have a propensity to soften some of these words. This word avad can refer to work. It can refer to serving someone, but it has a stronger sense, as you see in the list of words below. The verb is avad, meaning to serve, but in the noun form, it refers to a slave or a servant. Uh, it is a, another form of the noun avodah, it refers to what a slave or a servant does. They perform service or they perform labor or work. Uh, another form of the word avuda refers to household servants who in many cases would be household slaves. And then we have the word avdut, which means servitude or bondage. So all of these words are cognates and are built off of the uh, built off of the same uh, same root, and so it it has to do with a lot more than being a servant. In in our uh, language, being a servant is someone who decides that's the line of work they're going to go into. They enter into it freely. They are paid for their services, and they have certain uh, uh, certain benefits that they get that go along with their employment. Those benefits have changed over the last two hundred years. But that's basically the idea uh, behind our English word service. Whereas when you get into the New Testament, uh, the, the word is used by the Apostle Paul, uh, the word is doulos. And doulos has that idea of being a slave, a bondservant, is how it's often translated in English, sometimes servant, but it has that idea of being a slave, especially uh, in passages such as uh, Romans, uh, Romans 6. So we have to uh, understand that this is the idea here, and we'll talk about what it means to be a servant and a servant of God as we go through this passage. So Joshua gathers them all together at Shechem and calls for the elders of Israel, and they're going to have a covenant renewal ceremony here. And they are going to divide the tribes. Here you have, in the picture, you have Mount Gerizim on the left, and you have Mount Ebal on the right. And down in the valley here is the modern Nablus. Uh, Nablus is a corruption of the word Neapolis, which means a new city. Neapolis was there at the time of Christ. Arabs can't say the letter P, so P's become B's, and you have Nablus. That's why there's no such thing as a Palestinian. They can't say B's. Okay, so this is uh, modern, uh, modern uh, Nablus. This is a picture of the archaeological dig at, the, at ancient Shechem, and I've been there three times and have had the opportunity to walk around there usually haven't been able to get a group in there because it's very difficult to get Israeli guides because they can't get, this is an Area A, and Israelis are not allowed to go into Area A. It's against the law. But I've been in there uh, two or three times, once just on my own uh, with a couple of, uh, of uh, others who were with an APAC group, and we took a day off and got into the, uh, got into the West Bank. But... It's a fascinating area. We'll see pictures of that later when we get into Judges uh, 7 and 8. 
And then there's going to be a rehearsal of what God has done, a reminder of what God has done. Now, let me give you a little background on Shechem. It's uh, an ancient city, even when Abraham first came into the land. And during the time of his grandson Jacob, Shechem was a Hivite city. And this is where Hamor, the father of Shechem, I guess for whom the town was named, uh, decides that he has the hots for Dinah, who is one of Jacob's daughters, or Jacob's daughters, uh, other brothers. And he seduces Dinah, and her two brothers uh, decide that they are going to avenge themselves on the city. So there's a nasty little thing that happens there as they go in and they say, well, we'll accept you all into the family, but everybody's got to be circumcised. And so they get them all to agree to be circumcised. And while they're healing up, uh, Levi and one of the other brothers come in and kill them all. So that just shows then that the sons of Jacob were already acting more like pagans and Canaanites than they were those who were separated unto God. Um, but it's here that at the uh, between Mount Ebal, Mount Ebal and Gerizim, they will divide the tribes six on one, six on the other, and they will antiphonally recite the law of Moses. Um, the cur- blessings, rather, the blessings are read from Mount Gerizim, and the curses are read from Mount Ebal. It is often said. If you can see it, there's there's more forestation on Gerizim. Ebal is mostly bald, so they think that it's cursed, so it doesn't grow much. And uh, that that is its significance here. Later in Judges, we'll see that this is the site where the Shechemites attempt to make Abimelech, the son of Gideon, uh, the king of Israel. Now... All of this history may not mean a lot to some of you, but this is a sign of the paganism in our own culture where history becomes meaningless. Only in divine viewpoint does history really matter because history is the outworking of the plan of God. And so we need to understand history from the God's perspective, and it's the word of God that gives us uh, that perspective. When a nation forgets its history, it becomes impoverished. How in the world, many times, you know, as much as I know history and know things about mythology, when I go to Washington, D.C., and you see all of the sculpture work that is on many of the buildings, and they go back to figures in the Bible and figures in mythology, and it's, I keep thinking, i got to get a book that tells me what all of these things are. And if we don't appreciate history or know that, then it just becomes, oh, well, it's just some sort of decoration, but it doesn't mean anything. So we need to know our, our history. And so Joshua is going to rehearse God's, the history of God's grace for the nation. And so he reminds them that their ancestors before Abraham served, they were slaves to other gods. And then he reminds them when you get down in, in about verse 3, he says that he brought Abraham from the other side of the river, brought him to the land of Canaan, and multiplied his descendants and gave him Isaac. And to Isaac he gave him Jacob and Esau. 
And Esau got some inheritance in the mountains of Seir. And then Jacob and his children went down to Egypt. And so he rehearses everything there, their slavery in Egypt, and how God eventually uh, brought them up out of Egypt. And here's a picture of them as they are carrying the Ark of the Covenant uh, through the desert uh, in the wilderness. And so there is that reminder that God did all of these things in history. And then uh, he says, God brought your fathers out of Egypt, came to the sea, parted the Red Sea, reminds them of all the miracles, brought them through the wilderness, brought them through the territories uh, uh, under the control of the Amorites and of the Ammonites on the far side of the river and how God fought for them and gave them victory, gave them victory over... um, uh, Balak, even though he had brought in a uh, Balaam to help out, but that uh, God overrode everything that Balaam wanted to do in terms of cursing Israel, then brought them across the Jordan to Jericho in verse 11, and in verse 12 and 13 talks about how God set before them and gave him the land. And so we have these pictures of how God gave them victory, and this is a picture of the of the tell at uh, ancient Jericho, and you can see the the strata of the black strata of the scar where th- that civilization at the time of Jericho burned the city to the ground, and you can see that evidence there. And then this is a picture of Et Tel, which is. Uh, a possible, very possible location of I, and God gave them uh, I, and then gave them victory over the Gibeonites, and this is a picture of the tell at Gibeon. See, the unique thing about the Bible is that unlike any other religious book in the history of mankind, you can actually go to the places and the locations where God worked with the Israelites, where the Israelites lived. All the places in the Bible, just about, you can find and see them, and the others we're still looking for. But most of them, this is Hatzor. We'll talk about Hatzor when we get to Deborah and and Barak. Barak. Uh, This is the plains of Moab, where uh, Moses is up on Mount Nebo. This is looking from Mount Nebo towards the east, and you can see across there, there were some of us who were here who were there on a day that may have been even more clear than this picture. It was incredibly clear, and we could see the white stones in Jerusalem on the Mount of Olives, which is about probably 18 or 20 miles away. That was just phenomenal. So all of this happened, and so in verse 14... Joshua says, Now therefore fear the Lord, serve him in sincerity and in truth, and put away the gods. Can you believe it? They still have little idols called teraphim in their possession. And so Joshua again has to tell him, Put away those gods which your fathers served. Notice again this word serve, which your fathers served. They were, they were slaves to these gods on the other side of the river and in Egypt. And he says, put those away and serve the Lord. You only have two options in life, either to do things God's way or to do things Satan's way. And in Deuteronomy, we're told that there are demons that lie behind these idols. And we'll learn more about that next week. 
So you have these, um, this command to serve the Lord. You only have those two options. It's either God's way or Satan's way. There's no man's way that's somewhere in between. That's just one of Satan's lies. Verse 15, Joshua says to them, now these are the, his generation, the generation just younger than him. He says, if it is disagreeable in your sight to serve the Lord, choose for yourself today whom you will serve, whether the gods which your father served were uh, beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites, that is the Canaanites, in whose land you're living. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. See, what he's doing here is he's setting up three options. Option one is you go back to the paganism of your forefathers and worship the polytheistic gods over in Mesopotamia, or you worship the polytheism of the gods here in Canaan, or you worship Yahweh. And he makes it clear, me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And there's a warning about this and their failure that comes up in uh, Deuteronomy uh, chapter 32 verses 15 uh, through 18. And in that passage, God warns about the problem of prosperity. And he says, but Yeshurun, that is another name for Israel. Yeshurun, those of you who are from Houston ought to recognize that name. There's a synagogue on Beechnut called Beth Yeshurun. That's the same word in Hebrew. That's the, it's another word for the house of Israel. Uh, but, but Yeshurun grew fat and kicked. You grew fat. You grew thick. You're obese. Then he forsook the God who made him. See, it's talking about Israel. You, you, you abandoned God. That's what that word means. We'll see it later on. It's a zav, and it means to abandon and it's a very strong word. Uh, they, then he abandoned the God who made him and scornfully esteemed the rock of his salvation. When we turn our backs on God and we go Satan's way, thinking it's our way, but it's really Satan's way, that's what we're doing. We're turning our back. We're scornfully esteeming God. Verse 16, they provoked him to jealousy with foreign gods. With abominations, they provoked him to anger. That was all of the sexual practices that were going on inside the temples of the, the, uh, to Baal, all of the adultery and fornication and homosexuality and child sacrifice, all of that. These are the terms that are defined as abominations. They sacrifice to demons. Now, they think they're sacrificing to Baal and to the Asherah. But they're sacrificing to demons because there are demons behind those idols. Next week, I've got a passage I'm going to read to you from Milton's Paradise Lost. Now, Milton was blind when he wrote it. He would dictate it. It's a masterpiece for a blind man. He couldn't go back and edit himself and read it or anything. Milton was an absolute genius. He was reared in a Puritan home. By the time he was 10 years old, he could read Hebrew and he had a great understanding of theology. And in the first book of Paradise Lost, where he recites, uh, the, uh, describes the fall of Satan, he names the angels who followed him in his fall. They are Chemosh, and Baal, and, the, and Asherah, 
and Adonis and Apollo and many other names you'll recognize from the gods and goddesses in various mythologies because he understood this, that there are demons behind those gods and goddesses. And so uh, there's this warning about, have you forgotten the father who, the God who fathered you? So in Joshua 24, 15, it is the challenge that Joshua sets forth to them and to every generation of believers since then. Uh, who will you serve? We will, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And so this idea of serving Yahweh means to be faithful to Yahweh, to be obedient to him, to uh, commit to him our whole lives, all of our resources, all of our talents, all of our abilities, everything that we have. To serve the Lord means that we are devoted and faithful worshipers. The highest title a human is given in the Bible is that of the servant of the Lord. Moses was called the servant of Yahweh. Joshua was called the servant of Yahweh. The Messiah in the servant passages in Isaiah um, chapters uh, 50 to 66 is the servant of Yahweh. When we get into the New Testament, Paul's going to make a slight change in this. And he is going to talk about himself as a doulos, as a slave. So Joshua will say in 24.16, or, or the people will say, far be it from us that we should abandon Azav, abandon the Lord to serve other gods. Now Paul, I'm wondering if I have a slide of this. Yes, I do. Here we go. Romans 1.1, 1, 1, Paul says, Paul... Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God. He uses the word doulos. Now, this is from the Bauer, Danker, and Bauer, Arndt, and Gingrich, Danker, Arndt, and Gingrich lexicon, the latest. They've changed the order of the name so many times, I can't keep it straight. Uh, but it's BDAG, Bauer, Danker, Arndt, and Gingrich uh, lexicon. Doulos means slave. Notice they don't have servant in there. They have slave. Uh, it is a word that pertains to being under someone's total control, slavish or servile. One, it refers to a male slave as an entity in a socioeconomic context that is a slave. And two, one who is solely committed to another a slave or a subject of someone. Paul says in Romans 6.16, Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are that one's slaves whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness? Those are the only two options. Divine viewpoint following God makes us a slave to God. We were bought with a price. Therefore, we are to obey God. He owns us. We present ourselves to him. Uh, whoever we present ourselves to obey, we are slaves to that. So we're either a slave to the sin nature, which makes us a slave of Satan, or we are a slave to God. There's no middle ground. There's no neutrality. That's it. And every day, every minute, we have to choose. Choose this minute whom Am I going to serve? Am I going to serve my sin nature 
or am I going to serve the Lord? So I skipped over a couple of passages. At the end, therefore, uh, the people say, uh, we will serve the Lord. And Joshua says in verse 22, you are witnesses against yourself that you have chosen the Lord for yourselves to serve him. And they said, we are witnesses. Now, therefore, Joshua says, put away the foreign gods which are among you and incline your heart to the Lord God of Israel. And they say, the Lord our God we will serve and his voice we will obey. That generation obeyed. That was the generation of the elders of Israel that followed uh, Joshua that saw the work of the Lord in the wilderness. They learned to trust God in those difficult circumstances, and they uh, they went forward. Now, in Joshua twenty four twenty eight, at the end we read, "So Joshua let the people depart, each to his own inheritance." That's what happens right before Judges two six, and when Joshua had dismissed the people, that refers to Joshua twenty four twenty eight. The, the children of Israel went each to his own inheritance to possess the land. And so this section, uh, then Joshua twenty four twenty eight is followed by the last two verses that describe the death of Joshua, and that fits with Judges 2, 9, and they buried him in the territory of the inheritance of Timnath Harris in Judges, but it's called Timnath Sirah, in Joshua, and I'm not sure that the difference, maybe I'll know by next week. And it's in the hill country of Ephraim, north of Mount Gaash. And so that gives us the background. And that is the question, that's the issue. 16 times out of 21 uses of Avad in Joshua are found in Joshua 24. Five other times it mentions serving. But it's all, that's what Joshua 24, and that's the real issue for, for the next generation in Israel. And unfortunately, spirituality and spiritual maturity isn't automatically passed from one generation to another. So next time we'll come back and begin to look at what happens when there's a generational break and what causes it. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study through these passages, to be challenged by the uh, challenge of Joshua, whom will we serve? As for him, he said he would serve, they would, he and his family would serve you. And that's the question before each of us. Whom are we serving? And we have to make that decision every single day. It's not a one-shot decision. We understand that. And Father, we just pray that you would strengthen us in our inner man to make that right decision each and every day. And we pray this in Christ's name, amen.